you know, that is in part probably a recognition that these are animals that need care. And that alone, by the way, is a very important therapeutic dimension to our relationship with animals is the capacity to have a relationship that needs us or values us. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today on Dog Words, we're joined by Philip Tedeschi, Executive Director of the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver. Theirs is a unique program that examines human-animal relationships from a non-veterinary perspective. As part of the Graduate School of Social Work, they focus on therapeutic human-animal interactions, animals in communities, and conservation social work. In our discussion, we cover a wide range of topics, including how our response to COVID-19 may impact our pets, the importance of therapy pets, and the research and certification opportunities at the Institute. Visit their website linked in this episode's description to learn more about how animals, especially dogs, can be part of diverse careers beyond dog training, shelter work, and veterinary care. In each episode of Dog Words, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We save each other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. If you love dogs, you'll love this podcast. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. Use your favorite podcast service to subscribe, rate, and share dog words. This helps us with sponsorships. Then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. If this is your first visit to dog words, please check out archived episodes at rosiefund.org and on many of the podcast services. Please follow Rosie Fund on Facebook and Instagram. And please subscribe to the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel. We need subscribers. You'll have access to all of our videos, including some exclusive content. More subscribers means more exposure for the shelter dogs we feature. Just search for Rosie Fund on YouTube or use the link at rosiefund.org. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Today on Dog Words, we welcome... Executive Director for the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver, Philip Tedeschi. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. You are in the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver, and I want to make note of that because the focus of your program is how animals and that connection to humans is a part of people's social lives, psychological health. And I don't want to explain it too much because I, I want you to, but talk a little bit about the, the history and philosophy of the Institute. Well, the Institute's been around since 2005, and we're actually the oldest uh, human-animal bond academic center that is not oriented out of a veterinary program. So our program is and was intentionally designed to look at the human-animal connection through the lens of the social sciences, or really how people and animal connect, versus through the lens of veterinary medicine. And it's turned out to be a very important and good fit, in part because, you know, animals are an integral part of the human life experience, and also animal challenges, problems for animals and biodiversity are often driven by pressures from people as well. So studying human-animal connection through really the lens of understanding people has turned out to be a really an important way to look at it. My impression is that for generations or even millennia, that human-animal connection 
hasn't been the subject of a lot of formal research, but just anecdotally, we know there is this connection or then we wouldn't have companions like dogs that are domesticated. How is this different, this formalized approach to that connection? We've, you know, we've always had a connection with animals. And as you mentioned, much of the knowledge we've gained has come through stories and anecdote. If we look at traditional communities and indigenous communities, traditional ecological knowledge and our connection to animals is obviously relevant and has been around for a long time. But we're also now starting to see new kinds of investigations into human-animal connection. And one of the areas I think that's very interesting and exciting is the new area and study of animal cognition and emotion, sometimes referred to as sentience. And as human beings, once we start to study the nature of our connection with animals, or really our relationship with animals, and recognize that animals have complex emotions and cognitions that allow them to be really in relationships with us like any other relationship in many ways, it has opened a very important new door to the recognition that animals are critical parts of our social support network and social capital and influence our families and our communities and the world on every given day. Uh, many people are interacting with animals as some of the most important and reliable relationships they have. It's important to understand that relationship at any time, but particularly now when people are perhaps interacting in a more profound way with their pets or other animals due to shelter at home and, and other adjustments we're making to our life based on current events. How have you seen that playing out? Well, you know, that's a very important story right now. And I think it's taking an oversized role in kind of our capacity to cope with the current stressors related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's many ways that you could kind of think about this, but I think a a few that are most obvious and, and relevant to everyday functioning right now is that people are managing their stress through these relationships. And one of the things that we have been able to learn about connection particularly with companion animals, is that our animals are really effective communicators with us. So people have become, in some ways, you know, sometimes I've been fond of saying people are a bit lazy communicators because we use spoken words or written words almost as our only capacity for communicating with one another. Our animals, our companion animals, are using almost everything but that strategy for communication. And they're are very tuned in to the well-being of the members of their family or their pack. And so often when we're in the presence of our companion animals that are sitting next to us, or as I'm experiencing right now, a dog sitting right under my desk, for example, who's sitting here calmly and relaxed, the fact that they're emphasizing their capacity for well-being and, and managing stress or relaxing under the current circumstances, informs our own ability to handle those moments. And so there's many different ways that animals improve our health, but one of them is through this term we call neuroceptive safety, that our our brains and our, our own physiology is highly attuned to other living beings. And if those other living beings are doing well, flourishing and, and thriving, then it informs us and our own physiology and our own neurology And so we're able to 
cope with challenges better under those circumstances. And our companion animals improve our health in many ways, cardiovascular health, sleep better in the presence of safe animals that we have relationships with them that allow us to manage isolation and loneliness. So there's many, many different uh, ways in which animals contribute to human health. Is that a two-way street? Do they take on the stress that we're exhibiting the same way that we take on the mindfulness that they are exhibiting? No doubt about it. Absolutely. I mean, in the nature of any relationship, one of the ways we talk about it is this concept of the relationship being mutually or bi-directionally beneficial or challenging. So one of the things that's really good for our animals is when we take good care of ourselves. So when we get up out of our chairs and go for a walk with them and engage in play and other activities like that, that improves their health as well. And so we do know that our uh, companion animals and particularly dogs, and although other domestic companion animals, this is probably true for at varying levels as well, because we've been co-evolving with them for nearly, you know, some people would argue tens of thousands of years kind of co-evolving, they recognize very small changes in our bodies, in our physiology, our voice tone, our body posture, uh, that sort of thing. A dog, for example, will recognize tiny little movements in the human face that are indicative of happiness and pleasure and playfulness and also stress and other challenges that we might be experiencing. And so it's not that uncommon. Many people will say, for example, my dog recognizes when I'm having a bad day more quickly than my spouse does, for example. Mm -hmm. And they're just very observant. I would say sometimes the dog recognizes it even before we recognize it in ourselves. Absolutely. That they can be a, a canary in the coal mine, so to speak. How do you see the dynamics evolving based on this worldwide shift in how we are interacting with each other based on shelter at home and social distancing? How do you see that impacting how we're interacting with animals? Well, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon going on right now around the country uh, and probably around the world, although we always want to recognize that different cultures have uh, their own unique relationships with animals. So we do want to recognize with some kind of cultural humility that not everybody uh, chooses to have a dog sleep on their bed or have that specific relationship. Although I will say dogs are popular in, in many places in the world. But uh, for example, our own shelters are seeing kind of unprecedented levels of adoption and fostering going on. And, you know, that is in part probably a recognition that these are animals that need care. And that alone, by the way, is a very important therapeutic dimension to our relationship with animals is the capacity to have a relationship that needs us or values us. So as we've studied human-animal connection, one of the most routine areas that persons identify as beneficial by, of having animals in their lives is the reasons to get out of bed every morning, is to have a schedule and a routine that um, causes not only us to get up and start moving and have a responsibility to the animal, but then begins our day in interaction, a social interaction. And then animals improve our likelihood for social connectivity dramatically, not only with the animal themselves, but also with other people. 
we're more likely to be outside and see a neighbor. It's not that uncommon. People know the, the name of their neighbor's dog before they know the name of their neighbor, for mm-hmm. example, things like that. So you're about 60% more likely to have a social interaction walking with a companion animal than you are without. And this is what we refer to as social capital. And social capital is really the glue that brings communities together. So this is an interesting time because now, as we're required to do things like stay at home, orders are in effect and and doing social distancing. One of the ways that that we see this um, kind of morphing is that persons are doing this virtually, where they literally are sharing information about these critical relationships with other people on social media. So, you know, I just saw a post that said something like, my social distancing partners cuter than your social distancing. Mm-hmm. So people are showing images and stories and, and things like that. And so animals are, are filling a very important role right now in helping us manage anxiety and depression. Loneliness and isolation are by far the most dangerous mental health condition that we treat in the United States. And it's closely connected to things like substance abuse and other health challenges, things like obesity, for example. So our animals are critical partners, really, in improving our health. And so that's, uh, I think, some of the ways that we're seeing this uh, happening right now. I'm sure there'll be many studies done once we have some distance from COVID-19 examining the mental, psychological, and physical health of people who sheltered with pets and those who didn't. I know that uh, our dog Peaches has been a reminder to us that it's time to take a walk and to interact. I'm thinking there's probably lots of people without pets who are just going down that rabbit hole of, I'm going to watch one more episode of Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead, and then I'll get on the stationary bike, or then I'll call my mom instead of those who have a dog Let's go out. And then once you get up and moving, then you remember, well, I'm up moving around. And I I think I'll get on Zoom or Google Hangouts and and talk to some people and stay connected and eat right and exercise in spite of current conditions. You mentioned that uh, shelters with adoptions and fostering here in Kansas City with KC Pet Project, which is the third largest no-kill shelter in the country, they house up to 100 dogs at any given time and they have other animals, including cats. They have a strong foster program. The last time I checked, they had almost 500 animals in foster, and at any given time, just a handful in the actual shelter so that they minimize how many staff have to be there. They've arranged adoption visits so that the fosters bring the animal in, and they can do a social distanced greet and meet with the prospective adopters with the animal. I'm very curious to see how that will carry through in the future with the way KC Pet Project and other shelters conduct their business because an animal out of foster is typically much more adoptable than one that's in a kennel. Sure. And I think it would be a priority to try to get those dogs in a good environment, get them socialized, de-stress them, and then the meet and greets go better but then you already have the shelter built up with all of these kennels, how they're going to adapt to that or how the intellectual approach to shelters and kennels and fostering will evolve. 
Yeah, I think that's a very interesting observation you're making. And I think it comes back to understanding the unique characteristics that animals bring into our lives. And one of those is sometimes referred to as is the idea that animals, let's say dogs in this particular case, don't lie, don't have the capacity for deception, right? So you, in other words, if you were going into a, a crowded shelter where the dog has been overwhelmed by the you know, noise in that setting or is, the, is experiencing fear as mm-hmm. a feature of being there, you're going to see an animal that's probably not at its best. It's been struggling you know, with the stress of actually being in that sheltering environment. On the other hand, an animal that's being observed in a more healthy environment, like, let's say, a fostering environment, you're actually going to see it telling you in many different ways that it is improved by that set of circumstances. And so they are their best self, right, in that regard. So these relationships with animals bring a degree of authenticity for real connection that is often complicated in human life, where we might actually be struggling, you know, when somebody says, how's your day? And someone goes, oh, I'm, I'm fine, but actually I'm not fine. Dogs don't do that. And um, we, as a result, have these very authentic relationships where their interest and connection to us is an authentic form of that expression of attachment. And now the, the social neurobiology of this sense of a, a relationship or attachment is quite profound in that it changes our brains when we're interacting in a safe relationship, in a positive relationship. So it wouldn't surprise me at all. For example, the oxytocin system in our brains is activated by this contact with a safe animal. That predicts many really important parts of our capacity for functioning in a healthy way in a relationship. So, for example, we're likely to be more optimistic or more talkative or more likable or more friendly to others and the animal in front of us through these interactions. So it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of people who are fostering ended up having a permanent family member after this period of time. Uh, No doubt. And, uh, Something I'm also curious to see is the uh, return rate with pets because, yes, you have dogs that are stressed out by being in the kennel that present better coming from a foster environment, but you're also going to have dogs that need more socializing that aren't as uh, maybe kid-friendly or have, have other issues that are not going to be dismissed because I think some people go the other way that, okay, this dog is just kind of freaking out because it's in the kennel, but I can fix it when they can't, then they return the dog. And then you start over with a, the adoption process. If you have a dog in foster that behaves that way, I think you're more likely to get an adopter who honestly recognizes the challenge. And instead of being overwhelmed in a few weeks or a few months and returning the dog, knows what they're getting into, knows that they've adopted a dog that needs an experienced dog owner, a patient dog owner, and they're going to give that dog more of a chance. Yeah. Well, we're certainly we're certainly going to learn that about the animals that we have probably in our homes. And, and we also learn a lot about ourselves, you know, our own capacity for things like patience. This is a great time for people who have animals in their home to be inquisitive about this because we're home with them all day. This is a wonderful time to learn about what we call the umwelt or the, you know, the very nature of the animal's capacity for experiencing its own environment and its senses and how to enrich that animal's life. 
many people who have companion animals don't know that much about the species of the animal they live with. And so this is a, a unique time for us to um, go on that investigation and learn more about the animals we're with. As a graduate program, I know there's lots of research that's done by the Institute for Human-Animal Connection there at the University of Denver, but you also are teaching students. So what sort of options are there for someone studying at the Institute? Our Institute has a very robust research agenda. Unfortunately, at the moment, we're all teaching remotely and even doing our research remotely, but I'll mention a couple that I think are very interesting One study that we're looking at is studying the role of animals at a program in New York, a program called Green Chimneys, where we are given uh, the opportunity to study the impact of animals on child self-regulation and what we call positive youth development. So the kids there are exposed to animals and working with animals, and we're studying how it impacts things like their capacity for functioning each day in settings like school. And that video, that live video of their participation in the classroom gets sent from New York all the way back to Colorado, to our university, where we have um, graduate researchers under the guidance of our research team, evaluating that material, coding that material for the purpose of determining this capacity for impact. And what that really has significance in is recognizing that Animals, when we incorporate them in specific ways, have the ability to improve functioning in children who are highly dysregulated. So, for example, children who have experienced developmental trauma, child abuse, for example, their lives can be dramatically improved and their functioning can be improved as a feature of exposure to animals that are being cared for well. We also have uh, research going on in communities around the country as a feature of a program we call Pets for Life, where we're looking at the issues of equity and disparities of veterinary care to animals and how that impacts the health and well-being of individuals in those communities. So we refer to this as a, a one health study where we look at the connection or the intersectionality between people, animals, and the environment and the health that influences all of those systems. So students are involved in all of these research projects, and they graduate with a master's degree in social work with a specialization in human-animal interaction. We found uh, the Institute because we interviewed Betty Jean Coran with the Grooming Project here in Kansas City, which is a wonderful program that teaches professional skills, soft skills, life skills to at-risk adults using grooming training. So there's dogs that are part of the program getting groomed as the students learn. And what we talked about with Betty Jean is that, and we touched on this earlier in this interview, feedback from dogs is immediate and authentic. And that's beneficial in so many environments, not just someone learning how to groom. Betty Jean told us about this program and said, you should definitely talk to them and spread the word. So I'm, I'm excited that more people are going to know more about the Institute for Human-Animal Connection. What should someone do if they want to learn more or perhaps if they're interested in pursuing a degree at the Institute? Well, you know, yeah, thank you for that question. And Betty Jean is one of our, our awesome alumna from the program. She actually did her internship with our Institute and um, has gone on to do her own fantastic work. And by the way, the comment you made, this speaks to really one of the most important areas is how animals can be incorporated into things, all different therapeutic 
and community-based programs, places like rehabilitation centers or correctional centers where animals are incorporated as ways of not only saving the animals lives but also really saving the humans life or improving their life in many ways so there may be many people who would be interested in adding skills or knowledge in this area probably the best thing to do is to go to our website and on our website there are live links to our academic and professional development programs that we are always glad to answer questions about so somebody for example could take their existing degree and add a professional development specialization or certificate to their current work as a teacher or as an educator or who are working in healthcare environments we've had everyone from lawyers and doctors all the way to police officers and animal protection officers and public health workers and everything really in between. And many people find that animals, incorporating animals into their professional work is one of the ways to improve their own professional experiences and also those of their clients. We also have academic programs that allow you to get a terminal degree, a master's degree, for example, or a PhD in social work. And in some cases, we now are connected to psychology and education and law. And all of those have areas where animals can be added as specializations as well. Our primary program is a social work graduate degree. And so you get an MSW with a specialization in animal assisted social work. And those can be applied really anywhere across the human lifespan from early childhood development all the way to end of life care and even uh, the last hour somebody is alive in hospice, we often see people electing to have animals with them at the end of their lives. So they can find out a lot more about our program right off of our website, and we're glad to answer any questions anyone has. There's so many programs out there for getting a dog certified as a service animal, and those are valuable. But to be able to really leverage that tool, I think it's incumbent upon the human to have training, to be able to apply that dog in the best way possible for that environment, to have people who are actually trained specifically in the application of the human-animal connection clearly is overlooked since you're the only program. If it weren't overlooked, there would be dozens and dozens of these programs across the country. So I'm, I'm excited to spread the word that people will check out uh, the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver. And uh, maybe this will also inspire some other programs around the country to step up their game. We do really think that there's room for this, you know, in other educational settings. And we'd love to tell people about our work. We have a lot of educational programs. In fact, one of the things I'll mention as a feature of the current circumstances with the coronavirus, we had to cancel our spring conference And as a result, we are moving that conference. This is what we call Animals on the Mind. This year would have been 4.0. We've canceled that, the in-face version of that conference, but we will be doing a webinar series coming up this spring that will highlight these fantastic speakers who are working in this area. And we would like to encourage people to check it out. And it's a good way to to learn more about this um, very important field. And we have lots of programs, everything from humane education and specializations in working with younger children and teaching them what we call raising compassionate children is one of our educational programs. We also have a canine specialization called the canine assisted intervention specialist and also an equine 
assisted specialization focused on working with mental health considerations through the work with horses. So we have a lot to offer and we um, would love it if people would come check it out. And we're glad to um, answer any individual questions people might have. Again, a link in the description for this episode will take you to the Institute for Human-Animal Connections page at the University of Denver. And I will also link directly to the conference page so that anybody interested can enroll for the conference. And uh, I am so glad that this work is being done and these opportunities are out there to improve the relationship that humans have with animals because, of course, it's mutually beneficial. So thank you so much to Philip Tedeschi, the perfect timing, the executive director. Our dog, Peaches, just came prancing into the room to let me know everything that's going on outside in our yard. Thank you, Peaches. Right. Peaches uh, gave us the thumbs up. So Peaches approves of this interview. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And it was a real pleasure joining you. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. I want to thank our guest, Philip Tedeschi, Executive Director of the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver. A link to their website is in the description for this episode. If you're listening to this on a podcast service that does not have active links, just go to rosiefund.org podcast for complete descriptions for all of our episodes. If you liked this episode, check out our interview with the Grooming Project's Director of Student Services, Betty Jean Curran, in episode 109. She turned us on to the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, and the Grooming Project is a great example of how animals can help make our lives better, especially when partnered with humans who are committed to doing good. I also want to thank alternative string duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks, for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Learn more about The Wires at thewires.info and download their music on iTunes. Also, check out fiddlelife.com for drunken fiddles online, Laurel's virtual fiddle classes. Support Rosie Fund by following us on social media. Links to our pages are at rosiefund.org. Again, please subscribe to the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel. You'll get access to all of our videos, including some exclusive content. And it gives more exposure to the shelter dogs we feature. Search for Rosie Fund on YouTube or use the link at rosiefund.org. Also, make Rosie Fund your charity with Amazon Smile. And if not Rosie Fund, any charity of your choice. It costs you nothing. Amazon has money to give to charities and wants your help identifying worthy causes. Use your favorite podcast service to download and subscribe to Dog Words. And please share this podcast. This helps us with sponsorships. Then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions via the website. And let us know if you would like to be a sponsor of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening. And remember, we save each other. <laughs>